Hey, this is Michael Wilson of Queensryche, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, giving you your weekly dose of focus on metal. So despite any announcements or anything I might have said on social media about what the topic for this week's show was going to be, I changed my mind. And instead of doing uh, Crimson Glory for the next two weeks, we decided this week we would just try to fit in a talk with Brian Heaton, who is one of the three co-authors of Building an Empire, the story of Queensryche. Uh, so yeah, you know, if you guys were disappointed, you expected to hear Ben Jackson this week, well, yeah, I, you know, I can change my mind. And uh, we had a good opportunity to talk to Brian. The book came out a couple months ago, and we, you know, really thought we'd want to get this in this year, especially since Brian has been, in true disclosure, a great contributor to the show as well. So, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, well, Brian is part of that everybody else here at Focus on Metal. So, obviously, we need to take care of our own. So, uh, what is this book I'm talking about? Well, like I said, it's called Building an Empire, the Story of Queensryche. And it is uh, basically the second book that comes out from Northwest Metalworks Music. The first one was called Rusted Metal, which was all about uh, Pacific Northwest metal bands from about 1970 to uh, 1995. And we actually had Brian Naren, who was one of the co-owners of the label, along with James Beach, to uh, on the show a while back, talking all about Rusted Metal, but also... You should be aware that you know this is an active label, and they do do reissues of uh, rare album CDs from uh, Pacific Northwest bands. So besides potentially going up there to buy this Queensryche book, you could also check out what they've got available up there for some good metal tunage as well. And you can find all that at NW Metal M E T A L Works W O R X music.com but anyways this week like i said talking all about building an empire the story of queensrike and this was really a kind of a team effort and it's actually you know a pretty comprehensive book and not only is it a full biography of the band it's it's even a celebration of 40 years of queensrike and if you were to just read this through, you almost wouldn't know, except for some of the sidelines that are in the book, that it's really three people putting this together with, uh, you know, James Beach. He took the initial pass at it. And then after that, Brian Heaton took over that and he wrote some other stuff, kind of built that up some more, rewrote a few sections, added some details and all that kind of stuff as well. And then uh, former guest Brian Naren was kind of the main researcher for that and did a lot of co-writing as well. So kind of a lot of good back and forth between the guys getting this thing together. And, uh, you know, should also be aware that, you know, and you'll hear some of this as Brian talks about it in the interview as well. But there are a couple of key places when he talks about existing, you know, interviews, existing stories, existing history, all of that. And... uh, Two of those are, there's, there's one that's called Before the Storm, which is by Brett Miller, and you can find that at queensrikehistory.com. 
Brett was a uh, high school friend of the band. And then the other one is uh, actually Brian Heaton's uh, historical retrospectives on the original lineup, which is located at anybodylistening.net. So you kind of have those two things as good basises. And from there, they flesh that thing out. And, you know, when you really start reading the book as well, there is so much in here about the early days, early playing days of every member of the band. And, you know, it's definitely not something you you read in every band biography that's out there. And just the whole, you know, talking about the scene and how people were kind of in and out of each other's bands and lives and all of that. uh, It's very interesting read. And, you know, obviously for anything that is as comprehensive as this book is, you know, I did ask Brian, you know, how long did it take you to, uh, to put all this together? And he says, basically, I started it in March of 2020, bearing in mind there's a lot of things that were already out there for them to reference. And uh, basically, they, were, they, they completed it somewhere in about August of 2021, and it got published in October, so short timeline between completion and publication and you can get that in either the limited edition hardcover there's a standard paperback and then the electronic versions of it as well and i believe at the tail end of the interview you know brian talks about the editions as well with the fact that the hardcover edition is lagging a bit behind everything else but if you can't wait for that uh then you know go pick up the uh, softback or get yourself a kindle edition of it and then, uh, then buy the hardcover later on. And you can check. I'm not sure. I'm a little delinquent on this. But I do know at one point that Northwest Metalworks was offering signed bundles for the book as well. So you could go up there. Because you're going to go up there anyways, right, to check out what they have for uh, for tunage and other good stuff up there. And see if that's also available. And, you know, I did read the uh, the PDF version. Brian gave it to me early on, looking for some feedback and stuff as well. And it, it was a great read. Really enjoyed it. You know, I had a few criticisms in there on some of the stuff where I, you know, being a gearhead, I would have liked to have heard a little bit more about some of the gear and things like that. But again, very comprehensive book. Really brings to light uh, a lot of people that were in the band's lives that are so important to the band. But uh, he'll get into that when he's uh, talking to Richie. And again, for those of you who, uh, you know, popped in this week expecting to hear uh, Ben Jackson talking all about Crimson Glory, you know, I apologize. But like I said, Brian's been a co-contributor to the show. I think the book is great. I've been a longtime Queensryche fan. In fact, probably, I don't know, but Brian would probably remember, but a couple days after I finished reading it, I happened to be looking through some shirts and I actually found my Rage for Order tour shirt. Yeah, it doesn't fit anymore, but it was cool. I still have that. You know, the other reason for wanting to slide it in this week as well is that, you know, we're, we're winding down towards the holidays and, you know, it may be the perfect gift for yourself or for another metal fan out there. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there as well because again, it is really the first comprehensive biography of Queensryche. And not only that, but it really is you know, a celebration of 40 years of the Reich as well. And, you know, part of that in the book is talking about all of the different type of conventions that they had where, you know, these guys are showing off all of the Queensryche memorabilia and all that stuff. So really good stuff. And uh, just before I kick over to Richie and Brian, I will say, and, you know, hey, this comes up every so often, but uh, Richie had to head to some new technology to do the interview this week. 
And so I do apologize ahead of time that in some cases, well, a lot of cases where Richie's talking, you're going to get some spiking, squelchy stuff that's going on and some artifacts. And I've done a lot of work on the audio to try to eliminate as much of it as possible without eliminating words or making him sound like total nonsense. So some of that is still in there. Fortunately, you know, Brian's doing most of the talking and he is, you know, spot on sounding good. So uh, again, you know, this is a little changeover in uh, in the uh, recording technology. And I think Richie said to me that he thinks he's got it dialed in now. Shouldn't be a problem in the future, but I do apologize for that. A little bit unexpected did what I could to get the audio squared away as much as possible. But anyways, the content is all there. Good stuff with Brian this week, and it's going to be a long one. You're looking at about, uh, oh, I don't know, 75 minutes worth of awesome Queensryche talk with Richie and Brian Heaton. Kicking that off right now. All right, Brian. So we're going to talk about this building an empire, the story of Queensrÿche. I really enjoyed it. It's a pretty big book. Um, just came out what a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, thanks, Richie. I appreciate it. Yeah, it, we um, it published uh, at the end of October, so just over a month. Okay, and you got the hardback and the uh, paperback versions. Yeah, the the paperbacks and the digital versions came out at the end of October, and we're just starting to ship the hardcovers now in time for the holidays. They uh, they were delayed a little bit just due to everything's delayed. It seems these days uh, just with the printer. So, okay. So the first question I have: um, How easy was it to, to to get the people to be interviewed for the book? Well, you know, it was. It wasn't hard to get the people that we identified early on. Um, we we identified Kim Harris, obviously. We wanted to speak with him. Um, Brian and James, uh, Brian Naren and James Beach both had a, an existing relationship with him, so he was pretty easy. Um, a couple of the crew members, some family members, um, some musicians that have worked with them previously. It was all pretty seamless, to be honest with you. Um I would say there's probably about six to eight new interviews, maybe a little bit, a little bit more. I'd have to go back and take a look. Um, but brand new interview with various people in the book, and the rest of the interviews come from previous interviews that um, myself and a lot of other people did, journalists did over the years when we interviewed the band um, and members of the band. So all in all, we were able to kind of tell a complete story even though we don't have fresh, brand-new interviews with the current existing members of Queensryche, um, there was enough material material over the last 40 years to cover the story, and then we just added color to it and added a little dynamics to it with the new interviews that we did. Mm. Um, were you disappointed that you couldn't get any of the band members? No, I'm not really disappointed. Um, we... The interesting thing about, as I mentioned earlier, was there's so much material that was out there previously, there was plenty to write a biography on the band. Um, I had started a biography about 10 years ago on my own, and when James and Brian reached out to me, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer to do a book like this. And, um, you know, to be honest, I I really feel like it was... um, it was an easy book to write, um, despite not having 
um, the ability to interview the current members of the band. There, there was just plenty of material material out there. Mm, mm. Um, what about producers um, and ex-members? How far down the rabbit hole did you go trying to get them on? Well, we did reach out um, to a couple of the producers. Uh, Peter Collins is retired, um, so he was a little hard to get um, in touch with. You know, Neil Kernan, I had interviewed him years ago, so we, we just felt like since Neil Kernan had just done one album with them, Racial Order, um, my old interview pretty much covered everything we would want to discuss with that. What we really focused on, um, as opposed to just the producers and, and, the, and the people um, and, and the musicians themselves, what we really focused on was kind of the friends and family of the band, the people that would fill in the gaps in between all the official interviews that were done with the band members over the last 40 years. Um, you know, and as even recently as like, you know, 2012 when Jeff Tate went off and did Frequency Unknown as Queensryche, we, we interviewed Craig LeCicero, um, who, um, who performed all the guitars on that record, essentially. You know, those were little gap fillers that we, we felt were needed. And that was the, the full-on approach that we took. It's like, you know, everybody can, you know, submit a request and talk to the band members and get their perspective on things now here in 2021, or at least when we were writing the book, 2020, you know, but I think the more pure answers from the band would be when those things happened, you know, so going back to that old, those old interviews, we felt that it was just the more accurate way to capture what happened at that time was just to use that material. And the fresh interviews that we did were to help provide context for a lot of that stuff. Why do you think no, nobody's written a biography on the band before? Well, historically, Queensryche's been a pretty tight-lipped band. I mean, aside from the lawsuit in, in 20, 2012, I can't believe that's been almost 10 years. Yeah. Um, you know, there there isn't... They've been a very, very, you know, keep, keep our personal stuff really close to the chest type of band. Um, they weren't a band that was out there to make headlines. And, uh, and I really think that that is, you know, the amount of work that would be necessary to put together a biography and really come up with the, really, really kind of tell some of those stories. You know, I wouldn't say it's difficult because it was a pretty easy book to write, as I said, but it, I also think that you're going to have to put in a lot of time and find the right quotes. And, and, and that's what we did, you know, but historically they've been very tight lipped. And, you know, it didn't surprise me that a biography has never been done on Queensryche before. They were just never, at least their original lineup, they, they were just never one of those bands that would go out there and air their laundry. And it's one of the things that, that I think that the three of us, James, Brian, and myself, kind of really respected about them over time. One of the things that I got when I read the book, and you bring up that they don't air laundry, that they're pretty private as a band... When you're writing a book that's this long, was it difficult to keep it, this might be the bad choice of words, but keep it exciting because you didn't want it to read like they went into the studio, they recorded this record, then they toured Japan and then they went here, they went there and then they went and they did another record that there was a lot of repetition. There was no real, when you look at Queensryche, there was no real controversy with them until maybe uh, 2012 or even maybe when Chris left. Yeah, the, the exciting thing about 
Queensryche and keeping that story exciting? And I think that's a really good question. You know, their music was the exciting part. One of the nice, unique, well, I won't say they're unique because there, there's other bands that do the same thing. But one of the, the things that I think a lot of Queensryche fans appreciate from, from them is that at least from their original their original lineup, from record to record, they reinvented themselves. So the story behind what they were doing and the songs that they were creating, that keeps it exciting, I think, for people, uh, along with their story. I mean, their story from just coming from the East Side is, you know, uh, just a bunch of kids, you know? I mean, just a bunch of kids in high school making some music and then finding their way out of Seattle, which... You know, back in 1980, 1981, sure, there was Jimi Hendrix and there was the the Wilson sisters from Heart. But Queensryche, you know, you had to, before the information age, before the internet was was big, bands had to go out of their way to get to Seattle. Um, You know, it's up in that corner, northwest corner. And for five guys to come out of, you know, the suburbs of Seattle, there's a lot of, you know, interesting excitement, a lot of story, you know, a lot of a lot of, I would say, there'd be a lot of interesting nuggets along the way about how they were discovered and how they achieved that initial success that then got them onto EMI records and then ultimately all the way up, you know, the pinnacle, the mountaintop with Empire in 1990. Uh, Their story itself is really exciting. Yes, it was the whole, you know, get in the studio, record the album, go on tour, but it's everything in between those things and how they got there, which really made for for us for an exciting story. Mm. I want to ask you about the personalities in the band. Sure. Um, and I'm going to throw some things at you here, and you can tell me, which, does this fit which band member? Who's the business guy in the band, or who was the business guy in the band? I would say a combination of Kate and DeGarmo, from everything that we had heard and, and when we were doing our research with everything, you know, especially when the band first, you know, got together, Kate was business. Kate was all about business. Um, when he, uh, when he signed the contract uh, for EMI, when that contract came in, he wanted to know specifically what kind of guarantees they were going to get uh, for studio time. You know, when he joined on and signed off on letting the band use his likeness, he wanted to know what he was getting for that. He was very business oriented. I think Chris, as the years went on, Chris had a big hand in that as well. Um, so I, I really think that in the majority of the band's existence, it's been it was been Chris and Jeff up until obviously each one of them left the band at separate times. Since then, you know, when when they moved on to Toddle Tory as singer, I think Scott Rockenfield kind of took up a lot of that business end. And currently, you know, it, it just it just depends. I think currently it's just they all do things together now, which is a little bit probably different than it was back in the early 80s, where I think Tate and DeGarmo were a little more business savvy. Okay. Who's the practical joker in the band, the big kid? <laughs> well, that's Eddie Jackson. That's never going to change. Um, Ed, Eddie's got a great sense of humor and a lot of good stories. He tries to keep things lighthearted. One of the nice things, though, about Eddie is, though, he might crack a whole bunch of jokes, but he's really sharp. He's really intelligent, and he gives a great interview. You just have to catch him. But yeah, he's definitely the jokester, and I don't think anybody else would ever top him in the band. Mm. Who in the beginning was the metalhead in the band? Well, they 
were all, I would say they were all pretty much metal guys, except for Jeff, I think, in the beginning. I, I think Jeff was obviously more of a prog rock and, and, and kind of a guy. Um, over time, I think it's shown that Wilton is the more metal guy. I know back in the early 2000s, you know, he was very much into Tool and Seven Dust and some of the other bands that were going on and he follows all the metal trends as well so i i would say wilton although at the early the early stages it, it was definitely all of them probably mm. who's the quiet guy in the band that doesn't say much but when he does everyone pays attention to what he's saying because it's important from the original band or, or just and, in total well the original are in total either are uh, well i mean this is i'm just my opinion i, I would say that Probably Ed. I mean, he would. I would say if Ed has to stand up and he's going to say something, the guys are probably going to listen. That's just my opinion on on just being around them over the years. You know, Eddie's the type of guy that likes to get along and, and doesn't like to make a big fuss. But usually, those are the type of guys that you know, if they pipe up and say something, you probably should listen to them because that's not usually their mo. Um, who's the leader of the band? Well, I mean, it depends on the era, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think creatively, back in the, the band's earliest stages, you know, it was Chris, Michael, and, and Jeff steered the ship creatively. Um, and I think that's, as the band moved forward and after they got through Empire, I think that shifted a little bit to Chris and Jeff. And then ultimately, I think... Um, you know, Jeff took a little bit more of a creative license with the band after Chris left. You know, especially, you know, during the mid-2000s where they got into Mindcrime 2 and American Soldier and such. Nowadays, you know, I, I think Todd Latore really helped, puts a lot into what he's doing. I think Todd, Eddie, and Michael um, are the creative, you know, trio um, that really lead the band from an artistic standpoint these days. Mm. The reason I'm, ask, I'm asking you that question for a specific reason. When you look at Queensryche's first five records, like The Warning, Rage, Mind Crime Empire and Promised Land, they're all very different and within ten, they're, and they're all recorded like within 10 years. Um, I'm trying to figure out who was the one that led them from one to the next. You know, that's a really, it's a really tough question. A good yeah. question, but a tough one. I... I after all the research we've done over the years for, for this book, I, I would say that it's Jeff and Chris that kind of led down the path of not repeating themselves. Um, you know, they've said things, you know, about that, particularly Jeff, since, you know, obviously Chris has been out of the limelight for years now um, regarding Queensryche. Jeff said repeatedly that, you know, they never did want to repeat themselves. And I, and it's those songs, if you, if you keep watching those songs, the common thread is DeGarmo Tate, DeGarmo Tate, you know, and, and obviously Wilton was a big part of that, especially during the band's metal years. But I really think that they, they, their chemistry together as writing partners, because a lot of people forget that even though Jeff Tate was the singer, Chris DeGarmo had a lot of input on, you know, vocal melodies and, and how to approach things from a vocal perspective. And so I think as Jeff and Chris and their relationship, you know, got better and, and they became a well-oiled machine, um, I think it's pretty obvious that they kind of led the charge of, hey, we're not going to just crank out Empire, 
you know, again, we're, we're going to, we're going to progress one record to the next. And, um, you know, in some ways it made it, made, made it harder for the label to market them. In other ways, they really kept their integrity as a band. And it's one of the things I think a lot of their fans respect them so much for is just kind of developing that chemistry and making sure those records sounded different, but they still had a creative thread throughout all of them. And, and that's one of the things, if you put on EP, the EP and you go all the way through here in the now frontier, you're going to hear a different record each time, but you're also going to hear something that's distinctively Queensryche throughout all of those releases. And, um, that's one of the major things that for me, is still one of the reasons why, you know, those original records are some of them still my favorite ones of all time. I think in a lot of ways, Brian, they're an 80s band, but they, they come from like the 70s kind of a mindset that each album in the 70s was you had a label that would allow you to grow as a band. When you look in the 80s, it was very image conscious. A lot of bands were under pressure to conform. They wanted the ballad. Um, they wanted a certain look and here you had a band like Queensryche who third record decided to release an hour-long concept album yeah they absolutely are a product of of their influences in the 70s i mean obviously judas priest and pink floyd are are, are big influences of Queensryche, and as they move forward obviously iron maiden and, and then they they got more into um you know and they got more out of metal and more into hard rock as they developed. But I, I would say that Queensryche, especially some of the, the early research we did for the book, they didn't have as an easy time keeping that, that how can I put this? They didn't have as easy of a time making sure that they had control over what they were doing. As I think a lot of people think, um, for instance, for rage for order, you know, the band was so upset about what happened with the warning when the record was resequenced and remixed. They were so upset that they had lost control of the warning and what they approved wasn't what we all know is the warning that for Rage for Order, Kim Harris had to put his foot down with EMI and said, hey, we want control of this record from beginning to end. Well, one of the one of the things that they had to agree on was hey we need a single so we'd like you to do a cover and so that's how gonna get close to you ended up being on the record it was the label wants a single we need to do a cover song and so that's how gonna get close to you ended up on there so queen's had control but they had to really earn it and they had to really work it and as soon as they got past rage for order they had that control starting with Minecraft, and, and they never looked back for the three records after that. Mm. Focus! Which guy in the band was involved in choosing the producers that worked on those records? I think they all were. Um, you know, if you look back on, you know, Peter Collins and Jimbo Barton and Neil Kernan and all those original records, even Toby Wright for, for here and then Alpha Tier, you know, they, they all consciously made those decisions together. Um, you know, at least from everything that I've read over the years and the interviews that they've given, you know, it, it's never coming from one person. You know, I'm sure 
the guys in the band, each one of them might have somebody that they prefer or, or that they suggested. But at the end of the day, you know, it was pretty obvious that as a collective group, they all agreed on whoever's going to be, or at least if they didn't all agree, you know, they voted on it, I'm, I'm assuming. And, you know, that's how they ended up with a particular producer. But they had a lot of success. I mean, from Kernan on to Peter Collins, you know, it's hard to argue with that success. And I'm sure they all had a hand in kind of debating on who they wanted to produce their records. One of the things I'm curious about, Brian, in all the research that the three, three of you did on the book, at any stage did the label try and push outside songwriters to write songs with the band? The label pushed that? Well... I mean, not in any of the research that we've done. I, I do know that, you know, back during the, the Tribe era, I know that, that Jeff wanted some of his solo bands to write some of the material for what would have been on Tribe, and that didn't fly really well with Wilton and with uh, the other guys in the band. So... You know, there's been attempts to bring in outside songwriters, and obviously, once we hit Mindcrime Two, there was outside songwriters that were brought in. Mm. But I don't, I don't recall anything about having other people write their music. Queensrÿche, from the very beginning, always was very dedicated to the craft of songwriting. Um, you can tell that from the first EP onward that they really worked hard at it. And you know, over time, you know, you look at where Degarmo. DeGarmo's, you know, evolution as a songwriter really is what leads through. You mentioned those first five full-length records. Well, it's the whole band maturing and becoming masters of their instruments. But when you start looking at, you know, what's, whose song, who's, who's written which song, and you start listening to the evolution of those songs, you can really clearly see that songwriting was a big deal, particularly for DeGarmo. And, and he really evolved and improved and focused on melody a lot as he got into the you know late 80s into early 90s. Mm. How important do you think Q Prime were to the band? And are they the type of management that just, you go be the band and we'll deal with everything else? Well, they were. And Q Prime is huge. I mean, one of the biggest management companies in the world. Uh, and I mean, coming from Kim Harris, who, you know, all respect to the late Kim Harris, he did, he did so much for Queensryche as they started out. I mean, there would be no Queensryche if it wasn't for Kim Harris. And as they progressed away from Kim, Q Prime basically did exactly what you just said. Go be the band, and we'll deal with everything else. And it enabled Queensryche to just focus on their records, focus on Operation Mindcrime, focus on Empire. And they helped build the band into the superstars that they became on Empire. So I, I would say huge. And, and I really do think that especially back then, you know, management was so key. If you had the right people in place at the top of, you know, your your business chain, um, that made all the difference. The videos, the tour opportunities, it just opens doors for you. And, and I think Q Prime was, um, Q Prime was not only the right choice, but they, they were absolutely instrumental in helping Queensryche, you know, get to that top level with Empire. I know one of the tours they went on for Minecrime was they opened for Metallica, didn't they? And they're Q Prime as well. They did. They spent a lot of dates with with Metallica, and and I'm sure the the fact that they shared management was was one of the reasons. Um, that tour did so much for Queensrÿche. It really, um, 
you know, Metallica was at the top of their metal game with the Injustice for All record. You know, they never got any heavier than they did with that record. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the fans, I think, that saw the, those huge tours, um, that's how Queensryche ended up getting a lot of their later metal fan base. You know, when some of the thrash fans realized that Queensryche wasn't a pop metal band, they were actually a metal band mm. back then. And, and, you know, that got a lot of people on board. You know, I became a Queensryche fan in 87, 88, you know, and one of the first things I remember, you know, first couple of years, you know, back in 89 was, hey, I saw that band Queensryche you were talking about. They opened for Metallica. They were, they were, they were incredible. I said, well, yeah, of course they were, you know, and, and you know, they were, I, I just don't think a lot of the thrash fans back then, you know, Queensryche playing melodic metal, you know, it's a little bit of a weird pairing. But it really worked out well for Queensryche, and, and Q-Prime obviously had a big impact on that, putting those two together for so long. Mm. Now, when you talk about the later records, you know, they've got, you know, Tate's basically steering the ship on all of those. But when you look back on the albums from, from The Warning up to here in the Now Frontier, can you point to any one particular album and say, yeah, that's DeGarmo's record, yeah, that's Tate's record? Is, is it that obvious, or is that a tough question? Well, it's a good question. Um, I, I think the band was, I think once they got all the way through Empire, uh, all the way up through Empire, I think a lot of the creativity in the band was all of them together. I think songwriting wise, Tate DeGarmo and Wilton really shared the brunt of the songwriting responsibilities. I think after Empire and after all that success, I, I think, you know, if you look at the credits on the record, you'll see that DeGarmo ends up taking a heavier load of, of writing, at least from what we see on the credits, from Promised Land and Here in the Now Frontier. Now, why that is that, you know, there's various stories that are out there, you know. I mean, people had issues with the success, you know. Jeff had some issues with success. Michael did, Scott did, Eddie did, everybody did. Um, but I think when, you know, Queensryche had to go ahead and... and, and do a follow-up to Empire, it was really at least obvious from the, the songwriting credits that Chris stepped up to kind of deliver that. So I, I wouldn't say, you know, over the years, I think they were a complete band through Empire in terms of creating these records. But I think after Empire, those final two records with the Garmo, I, I think he really kind of... Um, filled the role as, as primary music songwriter a little bit more. And whether that was need-based, whether that was based on the success of Silent Lucidity and that Chris wrote that, um, it's really hard to tell. Um, but if you believe what the credits say, you just got to kind of connect the dots. And if you connect the dots, you see that the, the, the major songwriter in the band, especially as it went into the mid-90s, was DeGarmo. As for Tate as a writer, you know, I mean... Tate plays keyboards, he played a little guitar here and there on the Rage for Order tour. You know, one of the most talented singers to ever pick up a microphone, for sure. And I, and I think most metal fans would agree on that. But, you know, I, other than his lyric writing, you know, I, I just think that he came up with some of the bigger concepts, obviously, Mind Crime, some of the thematic stuff that Queensryche, he came up with. But it was really that combination of him and DeGarmo that really gave Queensryche its magic. And um, I hate to just put a record on one person, 
but if, if you really wanted me to do that, I, I would say that, that, that turn towards a warmer sound. I don't want to say commercial, but definitely the warmer sound that to me screams DeGarmo, you know? And, and I, and I, I just think that him as a songwriter as in 89 went into 90 focusing on melody a little bit more. That just screams Chris to me thematically promised land that screams Jeff to me, even though Chris obviously wrote lyrics to bridge and a few of the other songs on there. So if you wanted to pick them out, I would go empire was probably Chris from a creative standpoint. Promised land thematically was pretty obviously Jeff. And and I think here in the now frontier, I, I mean, if you listen to here in the now frontier, you know, it's to me, it, and you look at the credits, it was definitely steered by by Chris, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's um, you know, he was definitely influenced by by Soundgarden and what he what he heard around him. At least from my standpoint, I mean, Chris may think something completely different, but at least over the over the course of all the research that we did and the listening to the records and following all the little breadcrumbs, it just uh, appears to me that that you know that record definitely is a record that that came out of you know a desire to take a look at what's going around in seattle and they enjoyed that and applying that to the queen's right sound mm. so that's a really long-winded answer to a very short question so i apologize <laughs> here in the now frontier i remember getting that and i i i, I absolutely love promised land love it I, it's i think it's in the in the catalog i think it, it gets I think it's underrated. I think people compare it to the albums that came before, and because it's so different, it kind of gets glossed over a little bit. But here in the Now Frontier, what I remember when I heard that first, I didn't. Lo- I didn't really get it and like it then. And I, to be honest with you, I still don't get it and like it now. I, I never liked the sound of it. When I when I listen to Queensrÿche, all their albums sound pristine. They have this quality to it. And then they come out with this record with Peter Collins producing it, who did Empire and he did, and he did um, Mindcrime, and it's just like this muddy Seattle sound. And I listen to something like that, and I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier about how each one of their records kind of differs from the next, and you know, I, I would argue that you know, Promised Land is is underrated. I'll get to here in an hour from here in the, in a second, but. Promised Land is, is definitely underrated. I don't think it's because it's different. I think because at the time, the industry and the market, everybody was turning to grunge in 1994. It was Pearl Jam. It was Nirvana. It was it was Alice in Chains, who Alice in Chains is a heavy metal band. They are not a grunge band, in my opinion, mm-hmm. but that's, the, that's for another discussion. But And there was Soundgarden, obviously. So, you know, obviously, Queensryche, I think it was just Promised Land was a lack of exposure, at least in comparison to Empire. Their videos weren't played as much. Outstanding record, and really, if you're listening to Empire and you're listening to what they did with Silent Lucidity and Della Brown, the the next step was obviously more of a record, at least in my opinion, if you're going to change from record to record, it was going to be something like Promised Land that was a little more mellow and introspective. You know, here in the Now Frontier, moving into that, well, where do you go cre- creatively from a record that was more mellow with huge production? I mean, that was a 
big sounding, fat, warm sounding record was Promised Land. And, you know, it was a dark record, but it, but it had this huge sound to it. Well, if you're going to change things up and throw a curveball, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go with songs that are a little shorter. And, and you're probably going to try and change the production a little bit to make it sound different. And so, you know, when I first heard Here in the Now Frontier as well, I didn't like it at first either. And it took me probably a couple weeks to warm up to it. And then I, then I did. And then I understood what they were trying to do with Sign of the Times and you. You know, it was, hey, let's write something that's not only true to us, but that's more with the times. And I think that they tried it. Um, I think that they tried doing a record. A lot of people would would probably look at me a little weird when they hear this, but I think Empire and Here in the Now Frontier were both created with the same goal in mind. Um, and nobody in the band has ever told me this. This is just me, you know, um, just me summarizing and thinking about it on my own. But, you know, the idea was let's recapture our more mainstream audience. And what was more popular in 1996-1997? It was stuff from Soundgarden. It was stuff from Alice in Chains. It was stuff from Seattle. You know? And and that came out in their music. And it's funny, now, now we're out, what, twenty almost 25 years since Here in the Now Frontier's release. I like that record a heck of a lot more now than I ever did back in the late 90s. And you can see the progression of DeGarmo as a songwriter that's got so much guitar ear candy on it that, you know, you might not hear unless you're paying attention. You know, take, for example, Krista's outro solo in Hero. Hero is probably a song that most people don't even know exists. But if you listen to that song, while the vocal is kind of plotting and the song seems to be a little stagnant, if you listen to the guitar playing on that song, it's incredible. You know, and it's, it's probably one of DeGarmo's most interesting and coolest solos. But hardly anybody knows that tune. So I would just say, you know, they may have gone the, the way of the grunge. I think that would be the easiest way to explain it. But I just think that it was going along their path of making sure that they change what they do record to record. And to me, they kept their integrity with Here and Now Frontier, and, and I'm pretty happy that they did that record. Do you think that grunging up their sound, all the band members were on board with that? You know, I don't know. I think, you know, at the time, they all say they're, they're, they're gung-ho about it. And then obviously, as the years go on, you know, opinion changes. You know, I think that if you ask them then, my thought is they probably will like, okay, let's just try something new. If you ask them now, you know, they might have a very different opinion. You know, and that's one of the unique things about when we were doing some of the research for the book and we were talking to some of those people like Kim Harris and, and Craig LeCicero and the rest of them. It was one of the reasons why we didn't feel we needed to do fresh interviews with, you know, the original lineup of the band, because we really would value their opinions from when they created the records, as opposed to them reflecting on it 40 years later, you know, 35 years later, because their own opinions may have changed, you know, but, it, but it's at the time, you know, I'm sure that the guys were like, hey, it's a different approach. Let's try it. Who knows? You know, that's something that, you know, fly on the wall type stuff that only the five of them know at the time who agrees with what and why. Um, again, going back to that whole, like, they've been a very private band over the years. 
back in the 90s, it was Tate and DeGarmo that did the interviews, you know, and they were all pretty, I mean, Michael did a couple for guitar magazines and Scott did some for drum magazines, but for the most part, the spokespeople of the band were Tate and DeGarmo back then, and they were in lockstep on what they said. So it's, you know, it's hard to decipher, but if, if I was a betting man, I would say at the time, most of them were on board with it. And whether or not it worked or it didn't work, you know, 10, 15 years later, they might have changed their minds. Um, you have an album like that that's pretty polarizing with it, this, the way it sounds. I'm curious, was Toby Wright contacted at all to share his experience of doing it? Because when you look at him with the albums he did in the 90s, another polarizing record he did was Carnival of Souls, the Kiss record. And I'm sure he was brought in for a particular job to, to get a particular sound. Was Did you reach out to him at all to maybe get his perspective on that record? You know, with Toby, we, we did not. And it's one of the things that I regret from a timing perspective with the book that I would like to have gone back and, and done something more. Uh, um, and, you know, you mentioned the producers. Like, I didn't necessarily need to talk to Neil Kernan again, but... I would have loved to have gotten a hold of, of Peter Collins and, and obviously um, Toby Wright, you know, being the one who engineered mixed mixed here in the Al Frontier, mm. you know, and, and we might in the future. I mean, we're, we're not, um, th- this isn't the only Queensryche project we're going to do. I can't really say any more than that because we haven't fleshed it out really, but you know, there are definitely people like that, that we, that we want to reach out to and talk to a little bit from the perspective of the book and what we were trying to achieve with the book. It was just one of those things where trying to meet a particular deadline, we couldn't get everything in that we wanted to. So that's also another one of the things where I mentioned early on, you know, our biography is the first biography of Queensryche. By no means do we believe that it will be the last one. You know, other people might take that up. The band may take it up, you know. So I'm interested to see what follows from this particular book and whether it's us interviewing Toby Wright or, or and some of the other folks or whether or not the band comes out with their own official biography at some point. Who knows? But I, I agree with you. Toby Wright's opinion on here in the now frontier is definitely something that i'm interested in discussing with them and seeing how that record was created and who knows maybe in the future we'll have an opportunity to do it yeah yeah so after doing the book right what's the one thing that stands out that you learned about the band that you didn't know going into it there's a couple things i mean a couple of validation things where i i, I kind of had a feeling something was the way it was and it turned out to be true i mean the amount of work that they put in, you know, everybody talks about how hard people work, you know, Queensryche worked really hard, you know, and there's a lot of bands out there that, you know, get signed and, you know, you have your opportunity and you write a few tunes, you go out, you party and, and, and you do what you do. Queensryche worked really hard at what they did and they still do, but I'm, I'm talking the original lineup. The amount of work that they put in was gigantic. The other thing, the thing that I learned that was new for me was just how important Kim Harris, the late Kim Harris, was to making Queensryche what they were in the beginning and getting them a record deal. I'll give you an example. You know, Kim's connections in the industry in those early 80s, he was able to get Queensryche opening slots for people on tours and guarantees for one-off headlining appearances 
the, the kind of money he was able to get Queensryche was gigantic. And that's just through his connections. So it enabled Queensryche to really like go out as an opener, but still be paid re- way better than anybody else who was opening for any big band at the time. I mean, they Queensryche went out for Dio and for and went out with Dio, went out with Twisted Sister. They went out with all these bands where they're getting paid extremely well, you know, more so than a lot of their peers that were just coming up. And all of that was due to Kim's influence in the industry. And it was, I was shocked. I knew that, you know, he quote unquote discovered them in, in Easy Street Records and he pressed up the EP on his own label and all that kind of stuff. But I had no idea just how influential he was in steering their ship all the way through, you know, the mid eighties through age for order. And, um, you know, I, I can confidently say without Kim Harris, there would be no Queensryche. They would not have gotten out of Seattle. Mm. And, um, and that's something I think anybody reading the book, the first, you know, quarter of the book, once you get into, you know, how the band got established, I, I think people will be able to understand that just reading the first, you know, I would say 100 pages. Kim Harris is the unsung hero of the early Queen Drake years, for sure. Mm. Now, when the Garmo left, the general consensus is that Tate took over the band. Um, a lot of people don't look on those albums fondly, that, that fondly. Um, do you think that statement is true that Tate took over the band, or is it more that the rest of them let him take it over? It depends. I mean, it's really hard. It's, that's a great question. And I think the answer to that would change depending on what member that you talk to at what time. You know, and, and I don't want to take the easy way out on that. You know, my own personal opinion is, is that when Chris left, I feel like Jeff kind of stepped up to fill the void, the leadership void that was probably in the band. And I don't think that the band really had a problem with it. And again, this is my, my personal opinion, just on everything that I've read and researched over the years. And um, I think he stepped in and he, and he filled that leadership back here. And, and to be honest, I mean, you could say what you want about Q2K, but, you know, Q2K, that record got made because Jeff got Kelly, Kelly Gray, mm-hmm. and... With Kelly Gray's connections and everything else, they got a, a you know Ray Daniels as their manager, and they got a good deal with Atlantic Records, and they put out that record. It it didn't do well, but I think that Tate Tate's work ethic and him getting Kelly and them working together really helped propel Queensrÿche and, and set them up for you know after Tribe. We could talk about Tribe later, but then as as um, you know, DeGarmo came back for a little bit and then left again and take quote unquote taking over and the records that followed after that, you know, there, there's a leadership vacuum at the time. And, and, you know, Chris was, Chris and Jeff were, were, were creative leaders of the band and, and led a lot of the business stuff from what we can tell. And, you know, I, I really think that Jeff deserves a bit of credit, you know, for stepping up, you know, and, and filling that vacuum. Um, you know, the, there can be an argument. I mean, I remember when the band split, you know, there was that argument, the same one that you just broke up. Did the band let Jeff take over or did Jeff take over? And I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I don't think the band is blameless. I, I, I think that if they didn't like what they were hearing, they should have stepped up and said something and, and made something happen. And ultimately they did in 2012. 
But, you know, at the same end, you know, people want to, quote unquote, blame Tate. Well, you know, without Tate stepping into that, that leadership role, there probably wouldn't have been a queen strike. So, you know, I, I don't really know how else to explain it to just say I think it's just a little bit of both. How close did they come to splitting up after Chris left? From everything that we researched, you know, it was a distinct possibility. I, I mean, Jeff tried out for Journey, you know, um, and that just, you know, he wasn't selected to fill that role. I know that, that you've you've spoken in the past, members of Journey, and I know Steve Ajiri, um ultimately stepped in the shoes of Steve Perry and did a wonderful job. And, you know, Steve Ajiri, you know, was the guy, I mean, I guess you could say he beat out Tate for that Journey spot, you know, for whatever the reason. I think if Jeff would have gotten that gig or if, you know, they, that would have worked out. Um, I'm really not sure of the details on that. They've, that was another thing that was really hard to get any really concrete details. And, and there's a little bit of, of information about Ross Valerie saying at the time that Jeff is a hell of a singer. You know, it, it just, it just didn't work, you know? And there's also a little bit of stuff that I remember Jeff saying, like, I can't imagine, you know, and I'm, um, I'm paraphrasing this, but Jeff saying something along the lines of, you know, I just couldn't imagine myself doing love and touch and squeezing every night. And, and so whatever the reason, we do know that he tried out for Jeremy. He didn't get, he didn't either didn't get the gig or it just didn't work out. And he didn't, he didn't like what he was doing, which whatever the reason, but if he would have gotten that gig, there might not have been a Queens strike after that mm. for sure. You know, yeah. um, at least not with Jeff Tate, not in 1999. Now, when, when DeGarmo came back and did some writing and playing on Tribe and he left again, could you point the finger sorely at Tate and say, you're the reason I'm not coming back? Well, no, I mean, you'd have to ask Chris that specifically. I mean, from a fan perspective and, and from a biographer's perspective of the stuff that I've read, I, I do think it was a, a case of... You know, they use the term creative differences here and there. I just do think that Tate probably got used to doing things on his own without Chris. Mm. And when Chris was in the band, he and Jeff worked together on the vocals. I mean, because Chris had to sing a lot of those high harmonies, you know. And so the vocal approaches that would be tried in the studio, you know, Chris might say, hey, Jeff, try to sing this this way and this way and this way. You know, and Jeff would do that. Well, when he came, when, when Tribe came around, you know, from what we understand, that could have been an issue where Jeff was like, would be like, hey, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouth, but from from what we can tell, you know, there could have been some creative differences on on how they interacted in the studio, you know, perhaps what Jeff was willing to do, you know, and what they wanted to do together as a creative unit. It's really hard, Richie, to kind of put your finger on this again they're such a private band and you know a lot of the material that we use you know we use a lot of the the statements from their lawsuit you know their their the court documents which are were public and available you know so you're you're getting people's opinion and you're getting their 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 statements their sworn statements but their sworn statements from nine years after something happened you know yeah so there's a lot of things that could have gone on. Me personally, I just feel like Jeff probably got, and this is just me, my personal opinion. I think during those tribe sessions, I think Jeff just got used to doing things on his own and in perhaps didn't want to go back to the old system of 
let's work on everything together. You know, whether or not that was that's right or wrong is up to them. Uh, Chris left his reasons for leaving and tribe are still, you know, unknown. I can, you know, I could give you my opinion of why I think something was happening. But Chris has never been public on why he left. And, you know, the only people that have been public on why he departed or one of the potential reasons were in those, you know, were in those documents, were in those court documents. And that points to Chris and Jeff butting heads. And and if that's what happened, that's what happened. But we weren't able to uncover anything different than those court documents. Okay. Curious to know your opinion or your memory. When... When, when they announced that they were doing Operation Minecrime 2, did you think it was a good idea or a bad idea? A terrible idea. Um, you know, here, here's the thing to try and set the record straight on this one. Queensryche said once Operation Minecrime was finished and, and moved on, they said that it's a one-shot deal. It was a concept record. It's fully encapsulating. It is what it is. And... Then once they got to the tribe, kind of end of tribe and everything else, all of a sudden the story started changing, you know. And then it was, hey, we're going to perform Operation Minecraft, the original record again. And then, hey, we're going to do a sequel. There were never any plans for a sequel. You know, and they might have been rattling around in Jeff's head at some point, you know, in my opinion. You know, perhaps, you know, maybe. But from everything that we've seen publicly all the way up till 2004 – the band had always definitively stated, we're not doing another Operation Minecraft. We're not doing a sequel. You know, and then after Tribe, and as you'll read in the book, you know, there were some, because of 9-11, they had to cancel some shows in Japan in 2001, you know, and, you know, there could have been some financial and some legal issues, you know. Maybe they, maybe they needed to do something that would generate income, you know. And at the end of the day, Operation Minecraft sells, and that's what they did, you know. And to be honest with you, whether you like it or you hate it, Operation Minecraft Two was a huge success for the band on a, a bunch of different levels. Hmm. And um, you know, I, I mean, I don't think I still, you know, if, in a perfect world, you know, as a fan, I wish they would have never have made that record. But you know what? Looking back on it now, you know, fifteen years they absolutely needed a shot in the arm and operation Minecraft two gave that to them. And I think you have to credit whoever it was, who has, whose ever idea it was to do that. I'm going to assume it was Jeff's. You have to give them credit because I don't think if they wouldn't have made that record, I don't think they would have made any more records. I think it's interesting, Brian, you bring up day because, you know, I had Jason Slater on the show, late Jason Slater. And he, of course, was heavily involved in that record. And when you say they didn't, they didn't want to make the record. When you look back on it now, they really didn't play on the record. Like, and I'm talking about Scott, Eddie, and Michael. That Jeff really was the driving force on that. So the other three guys didn't even want to be involved in that. Either they didn't want to be involved, or they weren't allowed to be involved on it. Well, it depends on it depends on who you ask. You know, I I, I think that, and you know, he's no longer here. But, you know, you and I both know that Jason Slater was a dear friend of mine yeah, and my I family. I know he was. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's still hard to talk about him a little bit because I miss him a lot. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, whatever 
how can I put this? I, I, I don't know what Michael, Eddie, and Scott, what their official feelings on the record were. I can only go by what was said in the press, you know, years prior to that, leading up to the announcement that they were doing the record. You know, from what I can understand from over the years was that they didn't find doing that was, you know, cheap, doing a, doing another a sequel always cheapens the original. I forget which band member said that. It was in a court document. It could have been Eddie, but I'd have to look it up again. But at the end of the day, you know, they weren't really overly involved in the record, particularly Scott and Michael, mm. you know. And, you know, Operation Mindcrime 2, you announce you're doing something like that, and then all of a sudden there's a ton of interest in the band again. They got bigger guarantees they went on on much bigger tours you know and all of a sudden the deadline's coming and you know nobody's coming up with any songs and so here's jason slater who you know founding member of third eye blind so he's had some success you know accomplished producer not a lot of name bands but his material was definitely stuff that you know studios used to, to test you know th their their live sound you know he, he was he was a musician's musician jason and you know jason just expected to produce and mix the record and he's sitting there and nobody he's not getting any songs from queensrike and i mean think about that think about like from jason's perspective of being a fan of queensrike from the early years being a huge fan and he's get, he signed on to produce and mix Mindcrime 2. I mean, how huge a feather in the cap could that be for anybody? It could have been Neil Kernan. Yeah. It could have been anybody, right? Yeah. And he gets there, and there's no songs. Like, and, and there's nothing there. And so he's sitting there and going, well, shit, man. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> so he did what any really good producer would do. He picked up a guitar and he wrote songs and him and Mike Stone wrote that record musically. And Jeff obviously wrote the lyrics and put the story together. You know, I, I, I wish the band would have been more involved. I, I, I really do wish that, that operation Mindcrime two would have been more of a hard rock, heavy metal concept record, as opposed to being more of a metal Broadway kind of thing. You know, from a fan perspective, uh, you know, I'm a more of a romantic. I want guys who are on the record to actually have written the material. You know, Mindcrime 2 didn't work out that way. But I will tell you this, you know, Jason Slater and Mike Stone, they put together a hell of a lot of songs. They got that record out. And that record, no matter what any fan ever says about that record, and I, it's not one of my favorites, but it was a success from a couple weeks after its release, that record was fully paid for because they were able to do it in Jason's studio. And that record made Queensryche a ton of money because of the tours that they were able to go on because of it. And Michael, Eddie, and Scott, and Jeff owe Jason, in my opinion, you know, a debt that they were never able to repay. And, and I don't want to go, I mean, I'm standing here at the pulpit a whole bunch about Jason, and I don't want to take up a ton of time, you know, on Mindcrime too. but he was the unsung hero of Queensryche at that point, whether the band likes it or not, because without him, that record never gets made, and who knows where Queensryche would be today. Yeah, yeah. Now, up until the spat, 
where everything went to shit when they were, I, where were they, in, somewhere in Brazil on stage or something when it all went down? Yeah, it was in Brazil. Um, do you remember he- hearing any rumors or, uh, or anything at the time that all wasn't well with the camp? I mean, back then, I mean, I'm trying to remember the, the time frame here. So we're talking 2011, 2012. I mean, at that point, you know, they had done the Queensryche Cabaret and the members of the band didn't like that. Michael kind of hit himself underneath a hoodie for first few shows they did with that. You know, I mean, Queensryche stood for years as being a band that, you know, was completely against objectifying women. And, you know, the cabaret or what did it do? It objectified women. Yeah. So, you know, it went against what Queensryche really traditionally has been about. You know, so you had that. You had Dedicated to Chaos, which, you know, started out as a record where Eddie and Michael and Scott were going to write a lot for, and then all of a sudden, you know, they weren't. And, you know, that record comes out, and it's full, it's filled with tracks from, you know, Scott and Eddie had, a, had credits on there for sure, but it's filled with tracks that were written by Jason Slater and Randy Gain, and, you know, there were songs on there that Parker Lundgren hadn't even heard. <laughs> you know, and he was in the band at that time. So, you know, there were, it was pretty obvious if you're following along the whole storyline that there were issues, you know, that there were definitely issues and they were definitely getting deeper and deeper. You know, I don't think anybody at the time, other than each one of the members and their immediate families, knew just how deep the divide was growing, but it, it absolutely was, you know, and, and Brazil at that point, you know, when they finally decided to make some changes, that was, uh, you know, that that blew up and we all know where that went with, you know, with the lawsuit and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, they get Todd Latore in and they've done three records with him. Personally, I like the records. I, I now have a hard time seeing that band and call, as Queen's right because it doesn't have Jeff, it doesn't have Chris, and now it doesn't have Scott. What's your take on the albums they've done with Todd? You know, it, that's a it's a that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that the records with Todd are really good heavy metal records. You know, the the self titled record really captured the melodic side of Queen's that and a bit of the heavier side. And as they've gone on, they've they've Obviously, they've progressed a little bit. They're, they're still in, unlike the original band that really morphed its its sound from album to album. I think the three albums with Latori all sit in the same general box. You know, I, I would think the verdict is a, you know, is is definitely a little heavier and a little different because you have a different guy playing drums. Obviously, Todd Latori played drums on that record, which changes the sound, and you know, he's stretching out a little bit more as as himself as a singer, as opposed to being the guy who replaced Tate. I mean, think about it. I mean, latori has been in the band this upcoming year. You know, he'll be in the band 10 years. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like the records for sure. Um, is it the Queens right that I grew up really enjoying and, and, and the nuances that I really come to appreciate, you know, from the original band? No, it's different. You know, I don't like it as much. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Um, but I do respect them. You know, I, I respect the fact that Eddie has stepped up to the forefront and become a really good writer. I mean, I nine is a great song that Eddie wrote. Um, that was on condition human, I believe. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and Eddie's really written a lot of great songs, you know, and I, and I think Michael is in his element again, collaborating just like he was in Queensryche's metal years with Chris, you know, Michael's collaborating. And if he's got a great riff, that's cool. But, you know, one of the things I like about Michael Wilton is that he doesn't have an ego. Like I'm trying to remember there was this, uh, I think it was on that, um, on the first, uh, the self-titled record, 2012, or 2013, rather. I remember there was, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but it's the ballad that closes the record, uh, Open Road. And I remember that Michael arranged that song. You know, he took a solo, I think it was Todd had a, like a, a little guitar solo that Todd Latore wrote for that song. And Michael liked it so much that he kept it, and he put it as either the, out, I think he put it on the outro of the song. So while I think that's Michael Wilton playing that outro, that, that little outro was written by Todd. You know, that shows, you know, Michael Wilton's the guitar, you know, lead guitarist of Queensryche. To show, to have like a guy that'll sit there and be like, hey, you know, I'll take your solo and I'll play what you wrote, even though you're not a guitar, you know, a guitarist. It, it really shows that Michael doesn't have a huge, huge ego and he loves being part of the team. And, and I, I really think that there's a lot to like about the current version of Queensryche. As with any man, you know, fans are going to ebb and flow. You know, you're going to have metal fans that are just going to be like, no, I can't listen to it anymore. It's not Tate, it's not Rock and Field. There's no DeGarmo. I don't want to listen to it anymore. And that's fine. You know, that happens with every band, mm. right? I mean, take Bon Jovi. I mean, I'm not a guy that loves that loves Bon Jovi without Richie Sambora. To me, bon, you know, John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora are the sound of Bon Jovi. But, He's still selling out arenas, and Richie Sambora hasn't been in the band in a long time. So, you know, there's a lot to like about the current era of Queensryche. I think Todd is a much different singer than Tate, and I think people are finally starting to see that. You know, he's he's his own guy, and, um, you know, he's very talented. And, and I think the records are good, but if you're expecting to hear operation mind crime and empire over and over again or that all those little hallmarks that you know chris and michael added back in the 80s well they're becoming less and less because you really only have two original guys in the band anymore and to be honest with you in terms of framing the sound of the band you know chris scott and jeff really frameworked the sound of queensrike from the 80s and the in the 90s and those guys aren't in the band anymore. So when you hear Michael Wilton play guitar, you're like, yeah, I, that, that's, the, that's the guitar I remember from you know, Operation Mindcrime in the warning. But none of the rest of it sounds like that anymore because there's nobody else there except for Ed and the, the bass is in the background. Yeah. So, you know, unless you're listening for it, it's not, you're, not gonna, you're never going to pick it up. Um, have you paid attention to what Tate has done since he left the band? Yeah, of course. What do you make of it? I think he started out a little slow. Um, I think that that project he tried to do under the name Operation Mindcrime, it, it was um, well. I don't. I don't want to insult anything, but I, I think it was, in my opinion, I think it was a little bloated. I think it was a good idea, but stretching it over three records, trying to do this elaborate concept, I think was just a little too um, a little too bloated. You know, I, I, what I really have enjoyed from from Jeff Tate over the last several years is he's really looked like. He's rededicated himself to singing. I'm sure he was always, you know, dedicated. But if you pay attention to him over the last several tours, I know he's been doing the tours with Avantasia 
um, you know, with Tobias Samet. And Cadiz sounded great. And his performances on on the Aventasia record, I think it was Ghost Lights, that was incredible. Um, and live, he's been performing great shows live. I, I, I just, I have a lot of respect artistically for what Cadiz has done over the last five, six years. I, I just think as a live performer, he, he's... He, he's never going to be 80s Tate. I mean, who sings like, other than Glenn Hughes, who sounds like they sounded 40 years ago? Nobody. Um, <laughs> you know, and I swear Glenn Hughes sold his soul to the devil because he still sounds, he sounds better than he did in the 70s. Yeah. But, I mean, he's like the only one, though, you know? And so I, I just feel like Jeff has, has really stepped up his game as a vocalist over the last several years. And, um, you know, he sounds great. And, and I just think that... Um, you know, if he keeps down this path and he keeps, you know, working with Aventasia a little bit and, you know, putting together interesting tours, this whole Rage for Order Empire tour that he did was, was you know, yeah, he played a bunch of small venues, but he played a bunch of small venues and played a ton of dates like he always does. And he sounds great whether or not he's playing to 50 people or 5,000 people. He plays it the same. You know, I saw him in 2017 doing his acoustic tour. This is four years ago now. And he played in front of 35 people, you know, and he sang like he was in front of 35,000 and he sounded incredible. And so I've got a lot of respect for both sides of the Queen's right coin, as it were, and, and what they're trying to do. And I think there's a lot to love from a book standpoint. That's what we tried to, that's kind of the story that we tried to tell, you know, the story of, you know, Queen's is a success story. You know, it, it's not, yeah, they've had some drama and they've had some things go down, but in the end, this band should never have had the success that it did. They conquered a ton of hurdles to get where they were. And whether or not you like the current version of Queensryche or you favor Tate or it doesn't matter. There's enough Queensryche out there for everyone. And to be honest with you, it's just a fabulous success story over 40 years. And, and, you know, I know speaking for James and Brian and myself, you know, we, we were really happy to be able to the first people to kind of deliver the story. Just want to finish up on this, Brian. Yeah. And this, this goes for nearly every band, especially with all the drama that's still going on with that band. Bands don't know how to end well. They don't do what Rush did and not announce a farewell tour and just stop because you had Tate now 10 years ago with the fight and now you have Scott coming out now and he's suing the other guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, w- when is all this going to end? Well, here's the thing. Not many bands get to go out on their own terms at the height of their game. You know, Rush, you know, and we're both huge fans of Rush and we could talk for hours on Rush. Yeah. But, you know, not many bands get to do that. You know, to be at a financial place, to be at a creative place where you can just choose to end. You know, I would say 90% of the bands out there are still scratching and clawing to, to make a living. I mean, a lot of people have this have this kind of, you know, image in their heads of, you know, Queensryche, you know, was this hugely successful band and all these guys are rich and they make a ton of money. They're not rich. <laughs> they're regular guys you know and and i you know it, it I, I that's a hard concept for people to wrap their heads around you know and and i and i think that some bands don't have a choice you know this is what they do for a living this is all that they know 
And so they have to balance the interests of obviously what they make for a living and what they do for a living with the creative aspect of, you know, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? And, you know, it's a really fine line. And and I know with Queensryche, you know, all the drama that they've had, you know, over the last 10, 12 years and the lawsuits. And I mean, you mentioned like Scott Rockenfield suing them and, and such. It's a shame. It's really a shame, you know, and, you know, it, it's too bad that that kind of stuff is going on. But, you know, I, I wish Queensryche could have just wrapped it up, say, when DeGarmo left. They could, maybe hopefully, the, you know, 97, say they wrap it up with one big tour and they were all rich and they just retired or did their own thing. That would have been great. But that's just not how it works for the majority of bands. And it, it's not that way with Queensryche, you know. This is a working band. All five of the, the current members of Queensryche are musicians that are working. You know, and 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 they're they're trying to earn a living, and people think that they're rich. They're not rich, you know, and and I think that they've had a lot of success, and they should be very proud of that success. And I'm sure they are, you know, but I think it's really kind of even though we're fans, I really think it's unfair sometimes for us as fans to just say, hey, you know, you guys don't have it anymore. You should have wrapped it up, you know, right here. You should have wrapped it up, you know, at this point in time. Maybe, but we're not in their shoes. I know as a writer, if somebody would have said said to me, you know, your last several things that you wrote sucked, you know, maybe you should wrap it up. I, it's what I do for a living. Why Why would I stop just because you don't like this or, or you're not feeling this? This is what I do for a living. I have to work, mm. you know? And, and I feel like Queensryche is, and, and Jeff Tate and the whole thing of that, I feel like that's where they're at. This is what they do. And if you like the new records that they put out, that's awesome because then that enables them to get out there and tour and do things. If you like what Jeff, Jeff is doing live and, and getting out there and putting together interesting tours and of albums and, and different things like that, then just go out and support both sides. You know, forget the drama. You know, I mean, there's drama in everything. Check the drama and, and, and just go out and enjoy. You know, the history. This Queensrÿche again, and I said this earlier. Queensrÿche and all that stuff. It's a success story. It's not pretty, right? But most success stories aren't pretty. You know, they're they're made to be pretty by by people that can benefit from it. You know, but when you get down to it, it, it it's not pretty. But at the end, it's it's a success. And when James Bryan and I sat down to do this book and we we outlined everything about Queensrÿche, that was the point that we kept coming back to. Queensrÿche perseveres perseverance is kind of the word that always circled back. Like every time this band gets knocked in the teeth, they come back and they do something and they achieve success again with it. It may not be to the level of empire. They're never going to probably never going to get back there. You know, I mean, you hate to say never, but at this, you know, at this point in time, they, they, they likely will never get back to the stratospheric heights of empires. But every time you knock them down, they come back. And to me, that's a success story. To James and Brian, it was a success story. And that's what we were trying to capture in, in the story that we told in Building an Empire. And, um, you know, I think we did a pretty good job of it. I'm going to have one more question. Sure. Right? I'm not going to ask you about the reuniting question, you know, the original lineup going out and all that. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't do that. So, But I am going to ask a question along those lines. And I'm going to sure. give, give you an option as a fan. 
Do you think it's a bigger deal if Tate came back or DeGarmo came back? Huh. You know, you're the, you're the first person who's actually ever asked me that. Um, so you, you, caught me, you, caught, you caught me off guard. I, I'll admit this. I, to the public, it's Tate. To the hardcore fan, you know, and I'm talking like the people like me who know every song and every lyric and every little little nugget of information about the band in history, from a creative standpoint, it would be Chris. But publicly, you know, it definitely would be Tate because Tate is always the guy that's been out there. He's the voice and everything else. Um, for me as a fan, it would be DeGarmo. Okay. You know, um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, they, they've had a hell of a ride over the last 40 years. And, uh, you know, James, Brian and I are, are really, um, we're really fortunate to be able to be the first people to kind of put everything together and, and put out, you know, their story for everybody to, to read and enjoy. And, and hopefully we did a good job. We've got some early feedback that's been pretty positive and we appreciate that. And, um, yeah, so, you know, building an empire, it's not the last book that we'll do on Queensryche, but we're pretty darn proud that it's the first biography. Brian, tell us, tell us the world of sites where people can order the book. Sure. I mean, the, the full name of the book is building an empire of the story of Queensryche. Um, it can be purchased on pretty much every bookstore outlet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can even pick it up ordering online at Target. The website for the company, if you want to order direct from us, um, it's a bit of a – I'm going to spell it out just because it, it's um, it's spelled a little differently. It's northwestmetalworksmusic.com, but it's N-W-M-E-T-A-L-W-O-R-X music.com. Okay. Brian, been a pleasure. Richie, it's always fun with you. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about the book. I appreciate it. All right. Take care of yourself. Take care now. All right. See, I wasn't kidding you when I said this was going to be a long one. Lots of information going back and forth with uh, Brian Heaton this week. And uh, the guy definitely does know Queensryche, probably like nobody else except the band itself. And like I said earlier, you know, great book from uh, James Beach and Brian Heaton and Brian Naren. And if you want to go back and listen to the talk that we had with Brian Naren all about Rusted Metal, which was the first book that was put out on Northwest Metal Works Music, you can uh, check out episode 492, either up on uh, Amazon Music, over on iTunes, or over at focusonmetalpod.com. And I, I keep thinking it was further back that we talked to Brian, but actually we, we talked to him in, in March of 2021. So I don't know why, just the shows fly by. But anyways, again, you want to check out that and get the inside scoop on Rusted Metal, which was the precursor to this one then definitely go back, check out episode 492. And again, talking about checking out stuff, head up to NW Metal Works, W-O-R-X music.com. And you can see all the other rare stuff that, that these guys are putting out. Well, I should say not these guys, but uh, Brian Naren and James Beach, two of the uh, co-authors of Building an Empire, the story of Queensryche. So hope you guys were digging this one and enjoyed it. And, you know, after maybe potentially being disappointed for not hearing uh, about uh, Crimson Glory this week, knowing that uh, we slotted something else in that was equally as informative and awesome. And I will say that, yes, next week and the following week, you will get two weeks worth of Ben Jackson. So kind of... Uh, 
I don't know, I guess we're in a little progressive metal phase here as we round out December. But uh, I, I don't think Richie says, yeah, he's not doing anything else between now and the end of the year. So um, I am 98% sure that next week we will be uh, rolling out the first of two weeks worth of good stuff with Ben Jackson digging deep into the history of Crimson Glory. And also, now that this is out, and uh, you know Brian isn't as in depth in doing uh, this book anymore, I'm looking forward to actually being able to get some more stuff out of him for the show. So uh, get him back into contributor mode. It's it's definitely been missed. So uh, with that, the right no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal. Have yourselves a great meta week, and until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.